If you have your Bibles, we're going to finish up uh, chapter 12 in the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, so open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. And um, as you guys are turning there, just let it be known that if you don't have your Bibles, we have some um, in the back or on the edge of the road. John Carter can give you one. If not, we have some on uh, the Scripture. going to be on Facebook as well. If we go to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com backslash Impact City Church. You can go ahead and find it there. While you're there, go ahead and check in. Let someone know what God is doing here at Impact City Church. So we are so happy you guys are here. Um, little background, little background for you guys t- today. Over the past few months, we've been kind of looking at the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. The last week of his life. The first ten chapters, in fact, of the Gospel of Mark dealt with the first like three years of Jesus' ministry. So the first three, ten chapters were devoted to three years. And then the last, like, six chapters of the Gospel of Mark are going to be devoted to the last week of his life. Ten years, I'm sorry, ten chapters, three years, six chapters, one week. So you can tell that God is just cramming some goodness into his last week of his life. So much that he can write six chapters of a Bible devoted to that. And so that's where we're at. We started off in chapter 11. When Jesus made his triumphant entry into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, he comes in on the back of a donkey like a boss just rolling up into town. People are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, and everyone's just laying palm leaves down. He's walking down the aisle. Everyone's just excited about it. But we later will find out that those people who were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, will one day and soon be screaming, crucify, crucify him, and calling for his, his death. And so that's where we see it. We see him go into the temple uh, straight from there, he rides right up into the temple, which is the church at the time. And he walks into the temple, and while he walks up in there, he sees merchants just going crazy, selling animals for sacrifice, uh, making interest on trading money and exchanging um, currency at the moment. And he sees people just, just making a mess of the temple, and it kind of makes him mad. And so Jesus comes up, he gets crunk, he starts like flipping tables, he starts, you know, telling people people to get out. He starts overturning and letting doves go free from the, the cages. He gets so crazy. Check this out. He gets so crazy that he actually makes a whip and he started to just drive people out. So even Jesus wanted people to watch him whip, whip, watch him nay, nay. Never mind. Wow. You people. Gotta get into this. Come on. You're like, what, what? I'm going to Google that when I get home. Whip, whip, nay, nay. And so after that, the religious leaders started to ask him, hey, man, by whose authority, whose authority do you have to come into my house, come into our temple and start doing whip, whip and all that stuff? Whose authority do you have? Who gave you the right to do this? Basically, who the heck do you think you are to come in here and do this? And Jesus' answers to them was always a quick, little witty answer. I love Jesus. He's kind of a smart aleck at times. He kind of just gives them these quick little responses that were just short and sweet and to the point. But he frustrated them so much that eventually they got so frustrated by hearing his, him answering and kind of avoiding all the traps that, that they would lay for him. They, he, he avoided them and he frustrated them so much. They eventually they said, you know what, let's just kill the guy. 
Forget trying to deflate his ministry. Forget trying to kind of run him out of town. Let's just off the guy right now, like totally soprano style. Let's just kill this guy. Let's get him out of here. And so that's where we catch up here in chapter 12. We're going to see Jesus answering the original question of who the heck do you think you are here in chapter 12 by, by him asking some other questions to the scribes in the area. If you remember last week, there was a scribe that came up and asked Jesus, by which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus was like, to love, you know, the Father, you know, love your God, your Lord your God, and all that. And so now he's going to answer the original question that the religious leaders were trying to ask him about, whose authority do you have? Who do you think you are? So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and start reading Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Mark 12, 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great thong uh, heard him gladly. Jesus revealed four things about his identity through this teaching here, through these, these little scriptures right here. Number one thing that he reveals to us is that he is both human and divine. Not the vine, as in like the, the grapevine. No, the vine, like divine, D-I-V-E-N-E. He is both human and divine. The second thing he releases to us is that his, the work of salvation is complete. That salvation is completed within Jesus. The third thing is that he sits on the right hand of God in honor and authority. Number four is that he will rise again and return to get his bride, us, the church. So first off in the scripture, we read that Jesus is using Psalm 110 to describe who he is. Now, which is not the the scripture I would have picked to describe who Jesus is because it's kind of confusing. But he has a purpose behind what he does. Everything he does has a purpose. He chooses this verse, and he begins to reveal to us who the people, and begins to reveal to the people who he really is. And as he's revealing himself to the people, there are two choices here that come to us when we realize who Jesus is. As Jesus starts to reveal himself to us, the people here, there's two choices we have. The first choice is to totally reject him. To totally push him away. And the second choice is to receive Jesus. In his response, Jesus quoted Psalm 110, and that was actually written by King David back in the Old Testament. So Jesus asked this question. He said, how can David, how can David say the things that he said in this psalm? How can he say that? Because the coming Messiah, which is what David was talking about, the coming Messiah was going to be a son of of David. But David also said that he was going to be his Lord. Am I, are you tracking with me here on this one? He was saying, David, King David in the Old Testament was saying, this son of mine, this descendant of mine is going to be my descendant, but he's also going to be my Lord. 
See, most people knew the Messiah was going to be a man. They knew he was going to come from the bloodline of King David. He knew that he was going to be a political leader who was going to come in and just totally rule over the kingdom of Israel through the bloodline of David. And so Israel was no longer going to be enslaved to any other nation in the world. They were going to regain their supremacy in the land, and they were going to rule over everyone else who who before ruled over them. And so they were going to kind of take back what was rightfully theirs. They were going to have prosperity. They believed that they were going to have lots of prosperity. They were going to have a land and a kingdom that was just theirs for the taking and for the ruling, and that the people were longing for this man to come about. They wanted this leader to come about. When they, when they first heard about this, when they first read in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, the, the prophecy of a Messiah coming through, they were looking forward to this day. And they were partly correct. That there was going to be a man that came from the bloodline of David that was going to reign and rule in the world. But they were missing out on the point that this man was also going to be their Lord. But how can that be? How can this be? How can this guy also be the son of David, but yet also the Lord of David? David said, my Lord, he was talking about his son or really like his great-grandson. And if you have kids, you know this better. If you have kids, you know this, because I love my kids. I love them to death. But in my house, I'm Lord. I'm the one with authority. There was a chain of authority that in my house starts with me, goes through Sarah. Don't tell her that. Goes through Sarah, and then it runs to the kids, okay? Never have the kids ever looked at me and said, call me Lord, Dad. Never. If they would, it would be the last thing they say. You know, like, they would never do that. And so how is it that this offspring of David will also be the Lord of David? And it's like this. is The only way it's possible is through Jesus Christ. The only time in life we will ever see a child of someone else becoming Lord of their original authority is in Jesus Christ because he is both son of David in his humanity and he is also the Lord of David in his divinity. He is the son of David through the flesh and blood that he was born into the world through and he is Lord of David through his divine nature, his godliness. He is God, both the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus. And listen, this is great news for you and me. This should cause us to be really excited about the fact that he is both human and both God. Because in, our, in his humanity, he has empathy for us. That means he gets us. In Jesus' human flesh, he understands me and you and everyone here today. He understands us. Because you know what? He knows the weight of temptation. He knows what it's like to be tempted to sin. He knows that. He knows what it means to be tired. Okay? He knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to be betrayed by friends. Hello, Judas. You know, he knows what it means to be totally screwed over by someone who you thought loved you so much, and then they betrayed you so horrifically. Jesus knows that. And best of all, he knows what it's like, like I said in the first part, to be tempted by every single sin. He has experienced it all through humanity. He's experienced every temptation that you and I have ever experienced, whether that is the temptation to be lustful, 
the temptation to cheat, the temptation to do bad things, the temptation to murder. I mean, you think Jesus had moments where he just wanted to wring someone's neck? I think he did, you know? Like, there were so many moments where he was tempted to go in anger, tempted to be just, you know, maybe he wanted to, you know, I just, I mean, I just want to get wasted one night because I'm so stressed out with the ministry. You're like, oh, Felix, don't say that. That's not the Jesus I know. Jesus I know has a lamb, and he's sweet. And that's not the Jesus I know. If you don't believe me, Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus can totally relate to you because he has been there. I don't understand in, in all of y'all's lives, I might understand what you've been through, but he does because he's been there. And you're like, no, you don't understand what I go through, Felix. Like, you understand what I go through. As a man, the things I think of in my mind, there is no way Jesus can do that. Well, not as God, but as a human He faced every temptation that we went through, yet he was without sin. That means he was able to withstand it. But that's not all. Along with his humanity, he has this authority in God. As as a divine human, as a divine entity, he has authority as God. He feels the weight of all the sin and temptation that is around him, but he has the authority as God to do something about it. He is able to actually do something and do a, bring a, another option to us. He's able to step in as the authority and forgive sin. He's able to conquer death. He's able to take on the weight of our sin and give us his righteousness because he has authority as being the right hand of God. He is both fully man and fully God, and that is great news for us. And we've heard it said that Jesus was a really cool guy, right? We, like Jesus is a good man. You know, many, many people believe that he was here. There's no denying Jesus was on earth. I mean, that's historically, he is here. But people would deny if he was fully God. And people say, well, he was just a good guy. And because we know he's a good guy, we want to follow him. You know, we want to do things that exemplify him. We want to be kind of like him. We want to live a life like he lived. We want to care for the poor and serve the needy. We want to do those things. Yeah, we should want to do those things. Those are great things. But that's an insufficient misunderstanding of his identity. To simply follow Jesus for the good things he does is not good enough. We ought to follow him both as the son of David and as the Lord of David. We follow him because he did great things while he was here on earth. But more so, we follow him because he is God. We ought to follow him because he is God. We need to know him both as human, perfect, and without sin, but also as divine and undiminished Lord of our life. It's not enough just to follow Jesus because he did great things in the Bible. That's great. We need to do that. But you need to also follow him as God. And maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're just starting off this walk of Christianity. And you're like, well, I like him. and He's cool. I want to follow Jesus. That's fine. Stay on that path. But know that he will reveal himself to you like he did to the scribes and everyone that day. Know that. We need to follow him as Lord and as human as well. The other thing we can see in Jesus' teaching here is that there is a completion of his work. There is a completion 
in the work of Jesus here. The scripture says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now the word sit is very important here in the scripture. Many times we'll read through scriptures and we see a word like sit, and you guys are all sitting right now. So you're like, I'm sitting, I get that. I totally understand the concept of sitting on my butt. I get that. It's good, okay? And so we just kind of bypass what that word sit means, right? But if you look closely, if you really study what this is, the word sit means so much more. Because when we sit, we rest, right? When we sit, we rest. For we're not going anywhere for a while. The work is done for a while. We're not moving anywhere. Because Jesus didn't say that he was standing on the right hand of God. Because standing means that you're going to be moving soon. How many of you guys go somewhere and like, hey, take a seat. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm going to be leaving here soon. I'm going to just stay standing. You know, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He goes and he sits next to the Father in heaven. Because the work is complete. It means that the work is finished. There was a completion to the work of Christ when God tells him to sit at his right hand. In chapter 12 of Mark, Jesus was in the temple preaching about Psalm 110. And interesting enough, later on in the book of Hebrews, the same theme is discussed and applied directly when talking about the work of Jesus. Check it out, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. If you want to turn with me there, you can go ahead and do that. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. The author of Hebrews says this, verse 11. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all one time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, in the temple there is no chairs. There is no chairs. The priest would stand at, inside the temple and continually make sacrifices for all the sin that was going on in the world. It was a slaughterhouse of animals in there. There was no time to sit down. There was never a time when the, uh, when the priest said, you know, we, we have some downtime. Let's pull up a chair. Let's relax. Let's kind of chill out for a while. Let's check our Facebook status. Let's kind of relax a little bit. There was never a downtime. That is until the perfect lamb, Jesus, brought the perfect sacrifice to atone and cover for all the sins of the world. It was a complete sacrifice. And at that point, he could sit down because there was completion in the work of God. And listen, because in case you didn't catch it all, in case this isn't really jiving with you real quick here, the work of Christ is complete. It is sufficient for all of your sins. Everything that he was tempted through, everything that he relates to you with, everything that he knows you've been through, not only just what you're going through today, but yesterday and tomorrow and for years to come, he has atoned and the sin has been paid for. All of that is completed with the work of Christ. We should be in marvel over the fact that Christ is now sitting and not standing by the hand of God because the work is complete. It is finished is what he said on the cross. 
Every one of our sins has been bought and paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Every one of them. Every one of them. The one that you're going to go do after this service right now. The one that you're going to mess up this weekend. The one that two years from now you're gonna, your marriage is going to be in great trouble over. That sin is going to be paid for by the blood of Christ. Men and women, remember that. As you live life with your spouses, that their sins are already forgiven by Christ. And if they're forgiven by Christ, why can't we forgive as well? Remember that. It's really arrogant to think that you are worse off than his good. It's arrogant to think that, that because of our sins that we're not good enough for Christ. So remember that he has forgiven and trust in his sufficient sacrifice for us. He sits with honor and authority at the right hand of God. And that seat is reserved just for him because the job is complete. And that's great news for us today to remember that. But as awesome as it is to think of him sitting the job being complete, earlier in Scripture it says that he is sitting there and he is waiting for the time that his enemy should be made a footstool to his feet, which means there's one more thing to do. There's one more thing to do, and that is he is coming back for his bride. He's going to get up off the chair and he's going to come back for his bride, the church, us. He will rise up and return to judge the living and the dead, returning back to the church to save his bride. He will vanquish sin and death and Satan all in one nice sweep off the, of the sword. He will take care of it all. And on that great day, there will be great revival, and we will begin to see who he really is. And we will be left with two responses. Either we reject his identity or we receive his identity. You know, there's a story of a pastor who came to be hired on by a church. I'm totally going to steal this one day. Um, But you already know me, so it's not going to work. He gets hired by this church, and he wants to do a social experiment uh, before he goes in there. On the first day, he goes up to preach. You might have already seen this story on Facebook. It's pretty popular. Well, the pastor goes to church, and he says to a couple of his elders, he goes, Hey, I'm going to dress up like a homeless guy, all right? And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to bathe for like a week. I'm not going to shave. You know, I'm going to kind of rub like trash on me and get kind of all muddied up. I'm going to wear old, torn up clothes. And I'm going to come into church. I just want to see what people do, okay, on my first day before people know my face. And so he goes to church dressed up like a homeless guy. And he's walking around. He's walking through the church, right? He's walking through there. And some, some of it went well. Like some people showed up and they, they, they gathered around them. They're like, hey, man, brother, welcome. So glad to see you. You know, uh, let me get you some coffee. It's cold outside. Let me get you something warm. And, you know, maybe, they, you, know, maybe you, want a, you want a T-shirt from, our, from our, uh, you know, our T-shirt stash over here. You want something to change into, whatever you want. Maybe you want some, some food. You know, we have some donuts over here. You know, if you're, you know, you want something, maybe like one of those hipster type churches. We got some granola bars or something like that. You know, whatever you want. I come over here, man. And then they escorted him over to the worship center and sat him down. Hey, man, you come sit here right next to me and whatever. Some of it went well, but some of it went bad. Some people didn't even look at him. In fact, when he walked into the church, some people looked at him and they turned away because they want, maybe they, they held on to their kid's hand a little bit tighter. Maybe they, they were scared of this guy. You know, and then when he comes in, no one would offer him coffee. Some people just totally ignored him. And then he went into the worship center, and the story says that they actually asked him. He sat up by the front, and they asked him to get up and move because they wanted him to be in the back in case something happened. They can escort him out 
quickly. In fact, I mean, come on, it's the pastor's first day. What's it going to look like to have a stinky homeless guy in the front row? Well, time came, and the worship music was over, and, and other, the elders get up there, and the deacons get up there, and they go, hey, guys, we are so happy. You know, we want to welcome the new pastor. Let's all give a round of applause for our new pastor. He's his first day preaching. Everyone gets up. Everyone stops clapping, and no one comes up on stage, and they're kind of like looking around, and here comes this homeless guy walking up, and he takes the stage, and he reveals his identity to everyone. I bet you everyone lost it at that point because they were either freaked out because they treated this guy poorly. They were freaked out because, man, they were like, oh, my gosh, I totally didn't give him coffee. I totally didn't treat him like a human. I treated him like a stray dog. We just wanted to kick to the curb. I treated him wrongly. I didn't take what he was and treated him with love. And then there were other people that were so relieved. They're like, yes, I let him sit next to me. You know, like out here, like I let him come. They're like, yes, I'm so going to be mentioned in the newsletter this week. You know, I'm so, they were so excited because they treated him with love and with respect. And that's the same thing that's going to happen whenever Jesus comes back to earth. He's going to reveal his identity to us. And we're going to be standing there either excited over the fact that we lived a life where we knew him and we loved him and we served him. And we are so thankful and our salvation has made clear and perfect in our hearts. And we are confident in who we are or we're going to be freaking out, shaking our knees and wondering, maybe I should have done this better. Maybe I shouldn't have just ignored every time that I felt him knocking on my heart and revealing himself. Maybe I should have ignored it. Maybe I should have given my life up to Jesus. But by then it would be too late. We have two different ways to respond. And, and Jesus talks about them. Uh, and the writer of Mark actually, the, the, the Mark actually talks about him in verse 38. He starts talking about what else is going to happen here in the story. He says, verse 38, he says, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who walk who like to walk around in long robes, like greetings in the marketplace, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at the feast, those who devour the widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. Jesus was in the temple, and he was teaching about saying, hey, be weary of these scribes. They're, they're, they're not good teachers of the law. They're all about what they look like. They're about who they are. They're about their image and their self-image. They want to be the best they could be. Beware people like that. And the funny thing is, is that as he's teaching about these, these people, as he's teaching about these guys that are these scribes, they don't want to be self-righteous. They think they got to be all good. As he's teaching about them, they're actually standing in the room right next to him. That's crazy. That's radical right there. He's got like, he's got no gall. He is just going for it. And, and they're looking at him. And they look at him and their hearts are far from Jesus because they're looking at Jesus talk about them. They know he's, he's God. They know he has power because they're trying to kill him because they know he's a threat. And yet they still reject Jesus. For many of us, that's us here today. Jesus can be right here in the room next to us, and you will still reject him. You will still reject him, knowing that he's here 
He's trying to make a way for you. He's trying to talk to you. He's trying to say, hey, it's okay. I'm here. You don't have to be afraid. And yet you will still reject him. Because like the Pharisees and the scribes, they desired to look good. They desired to have all the things that they wanted. They wanted the life that they had over the life that Jesus wanted for them. They refused to let go of their pride. They refused to let go of their money. They refused to let go of their life. They held on to selfish desires. And as a result, they rejected Jesus. If we're honest, at times we can struggle with this, this sense of entitlement. We sense that because they were like that, that they felt entitled to what God had for them. The sense of entitlement came over them. They, they, we, could, we could end up in the same boat. Because we feel like as long as I go to church, as long as I serve in church, you know what, pastor's like always begging me to serve. I'm finally going to make him shut up and serve. As long as I serve in the church, I'm going to do it as, as long as God shows up for me. I'll, I'll, I'll serve. I'll pray every day as long as God shows up for me. As long as God brings me healing, as long as God pours out a blessing over me, I'll still show up for church. As long as God provides a job for me, I'm going to serve with the the condition that he's going to provide something for me. I'm going to serve and love God with the condition that he's going to provide for me a spouse. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is that we we vow that we're going to follow Jesus as long as he does something for us. Maybe it's going to church every Sunday. Maybe it's, you know, joining a missional city group. Maybe it's volunteering in the children's area, wherever it is. And we're like the Pharisees. We'll do it as long as God shows up and keeps us looking good. But when we live a life like that, when we live a life like this, it doesn't come through, and and God doesn't come through sometimes. Because newsflash, God will not come through all the time the the way you think you want him to come through. When we live a life with these conditions and Jesus doesn't come through the way we want him to, we get ready to just walk away from everything. Because we label him a heretic. We label him a liar. And the problem is, is that we feel like we want to be prosperous. And we feel like we want all these things, but he doesn't provide them. And that's a problem. We assume a posture of entitlement and bartering with God. You feel like we can kind of, you know, hey, uh, God, I'll do this if you do this for me. Let's be clear on this. He is the Lord of David. He has authority by God and is God. We don't have no right to even open our mouths or even look at him, much less try to barter with God. There is a grace and a kindness that comes from him. And everything that he gives to us is through that grace and kindness. His grace is what draws us near, and his kindness is what allows us to have everlasting life because he chooses to lavish us with that love and grace. So we can choose to reject that. Even though that sounds so good, we can choose to reject that like the scribes did. Or we can choose to respond like this other person in verse 41. Let's keep reading. They're in the temple. Everything's going on. Check out what happens next. Jesus sat down. He says he sat down opposite of the treasury, opposite of the offering box, like right here, you know, like offering box, opposite side, looking at it. He says, and watch the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put their large sums into the offering box. And a poor widow, a poor widow, came up and put in two small copper coins, which makes one penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. We see a contrast between the religious leaders and this poor widow. We see the religious leaders reject Jesus. And here they come in, they just give him a little bit. But the poor widow, who didn't have a great seat or a job in the temple, she wasn't in fancy robes, she wasn't high, held as a high priest or someone of authority. She had nothing. She had just two copper coins. She was a very, very poor woman. And yet, she comes and she gives the only thing she has and she gives it all to the church. In fact, she gave up control at that moment. She trusted Jesus with everything at that moment. She trusted God with everything at that moment. She gave up the last safety net she had, the little bit of money she had. She gave it all to the church. See, the religious leaders were given a lot, and it looked great. Believe me, they're in their fancy robes. They got their bling-bling on. They're walking up to the offering box, dropping in 40s. And they're, they're, doing like, they're, just, like, they're dropping in Benjamins, and just, they're looking good, right? Everyone's like, man, check out that leader, man. Look how good he's. Man, he wants to have everything together. And here comes this raggedy old widow. Hasn't eaten in a few days, probably. And she drops in all of her money, which is only two, two little coins. See, the religious leaders were giving, but they weren't giving out of their poverty. They were giving out of their excess. It means they were holding back from God. They were holding something back. But the woman gave all she had to live on. All that she had to live on, she gave it all to the church. And now the, the way Mark writes this in the original Greek, the word for, for life that she gave all is the word bios. And the word bios literally means her life. So she actually gave her life to Christ. She gave everything she had. She trusted everything. She trusted her bios, her life to God. Now, I know what you're thinking, church. I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, okay, pastor, I get it. I get it. Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be like the widow and not the religious leaders. Okay, I'm supposed to give everything that I have. But how does that look for me? Okay, because I'm not poor, for one. I'm pretty median in the median class. So you want me to give all my money? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying here. For us, this is a call to sacrifice something. When we trust Jesus, you got to sacrifice something to him. The widow gave sacrificially, and she trusted Jesus, even within a broken system. The church was not good. Those two little coins were just going to be used to buy a new robe for the chief priest to look good in. It was a broken system. But Jesus doesn't want us to give to a broken system. He just wants us to give to him. In fact, he's coming back to rebuild the system, to build a new temple and a new system, to be redeemed and run by the saints of God. He is going to be the cornerstone of that new system, and that is the kingdom that he wants us to give to. He's not calling us to sacrifice to a broken system. He wants us to give to him for the 
further of the kingdom, which means that when we give, we give as much as we can, as long as we know that we're sacrificing something. And we don't think twice about what we're giving. We're giving it, and we know that God is going to use it for the furthering of the kingdom. He's calling us to sacrifice to an eternal kingdom, the same way that the uh, widow gave. The word bios is used there, but it's also used later on in the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus gives up his life, it says that he gave up his bios to God upon the cross. He gave up his life away so we can have eternal life. Thus, we don't sacrifice out of our emptiness, but rather we sacrifice out of the fullness of God's sacrifice for us. If you're redeemed by the living Savior, Jesus Christ, you have much to offer the church. You give what you have, your time, your talents, what you have. And by doing so, you are receiving God at that moment. That is our calling, to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. And we must trust Him in everything when we do that. Because we have to. Because we lay everything aside like the, that the, like the woman did. Because when we begin to recognize the identity of Jesus, we should trust in who He is. Because He is empathetic for us. It means He sympathizes for what we go through. He understands your pain. He understands what you go through. He knows your sin and He loves you anyway. And He is the authoritative one who can come and change your life at any moment. He is the one that has the authority to pull you out of the sin that you are in. He is the one that has the authority to look at you with love and grace and say, no matter what you've done, it doesn't doesn't matter to me, I don't care what you've done, I still love you and I still have my hand out for you. Please receive it. Don't reject it. He can forgive your sins and bring about a sense of righteousness to you because you are his And we trust Him with everything in our lives, with our finances, with our jobs, our spouses, our relationships, our families, everything we trust Him with. We ask Him to take these things and we ask Him to use them as stones to build up His kingdom. So when you trust God and you offer your sacrifice, offer Him everything, He will take that brick and He will use it to build up His kingdom. Let us receive Jesus. Let us sacrifice like the widow. And let us trust in who he says he is as we go out today and throughout the week. Let us trust in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today and thank you for this group of people. God, we're just so thankful for your sacrifice. We're thankful for what you give. We're thankful for for not looking away, seeing us when we mess up, for seeing us in our, in our sin and seeing us in our times where we're, where, when we reject you, yet you still are there for us. You still love us. You still reach out for us. Lord, we just give you thanks and praise for that today. Lord, we want to worship you with full hearts. We want to worship you as God, as King, not merely a man that walked the streets. We want to sing praises to you as someone who is here and now, not someone who was and is no more. We want to know you as fully man, someone who showed us the right way to live, who showed us a possible life of no sin through your son, through Jesus. And we want to worship you as fully God, someone who understands our sin and our pain, 
and who is able to come and sympathize with us and has authority to change that. And it's in Christ's name I pray. All God's people said, Amen.